Hey, how are you? Welcome to another episode of Pretender to Contender. This is your host. How are you? This is Joe, Joe Matarese, if you're a first time listener. And I think you're going to really like this episode. Uh, we have a great guest. This is the first comedy manager that I've had on Pretender to Contender. Today, our guest is Rick Dorfman, who's the head of comedy at Authentic Management. Currently represents J.B. Smooth, Chris DiStefano, uh, Fran Drescher, and many, many other people in the comedy business. And he used to be my manager many, many years ago. So I don't want to take up too much time right here at the top. Let's get right to the interview. We'll be right back with comedy manager Rick Dorfman. So, uh, so Rick, so so you're my uh, you're my first comedy manager. Uh, is that is that what you? Uh, I went, I'm trying to think of the title because I you know of of what. I guess you would say, if people came up to you, what do you do for a living? You would say, uh, I manage comedians. Or do you manage more than comedians now? I haven't talked to you in a few years. Uh, I do manage more than comedians. Um, I manage some actors, uh, you know, Fran Drescher and Terry Hatcher and Jennifer Esposito. And then some comedic actors like, uh, you know, Sherry O'Terry, some people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I work closely with a lot of the actors in my company, like Dan Beckett and social Rockmore and, uh, Hillary Burton and some people like that, where I'm helping them build brands or create television shows or books or podcasts or whatever. So, you and- know, it's, it's been a long road to get to where I am now, which, you know. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, we've <laughs> known each other so long, and for all the listeners and some of the people on Patreon that are able to see some of this, uh, Rick used to be my manager for, for a while, and and we've known each other even before you managed me. You've had a really uh, long career that's that's changed paths a bunch of times, right? So, like, um, I don't even know if this is the first time you've ever did a podcast or anybody's interviewed you, but you're a perfect person in this field to interview for, you know, a, a podcast. Well, no, thank you, Joseph. No one's interviewed you for a podcast ever. Uh, I've been, I, I have done some podcasts and, um, but, I, and I have gotten asked a lot, you know, but a lot of times people want me to tell stories about stuff that, you know stuff that's happened or people in the industry and i'm not going to do that right yeah th- th- i run into that too like that's yeah. what does the best on podcasts is when you're yeah. willing to throw people under the bus and in yeah. your business if you did that you'd probably oh, be I'd, done i'd be done <laughs> <laughs> i'd and, be done especially some of the stories that i <laughs> yeah and that's something else we could probably talk about because we've been both of us have been in the comedy business so long I feel like only in the past five to 10 years has that become popular in our business. This used to be a business that no one would ever talk bad about each other. And we were always afraid to. I remember in LA, I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll go back to, uh, and I want to get to uh, when you were a pretender or really early on. Um, if you can remember, uh, let's see who it was. It was Anthony Anthony Clark. Was that his name? Yeah. You don't hear yeah. about that guy anymore. Remember him? 
Yeah, of course. I remember when he was doing boss and then he got that show. Um, I yeah. mean, I forgot if it was called the, no, it was like Austin something, something, Austin, something, right. Yeah. And then it's kind of disappeared. Yeah, that's true. He was, and then he had that sitcom. Yes, dear. That was really big. Yeah. So Anthony Clark was talking to a friend of mine, Justin McKinney at the, oh, I love Justin. Yeah. At the improv in LA. And I had just moved out there and I was a New York guy and I guess maybe in the New York comedy business, it was a little more common to talk sh- shit ab- amongst each other, not like on a podcast that didn't exist. Yeah. So Anthony Clark and Justin are talking. And this is sad because um, I think the, com- the comedian um, took his life. Uh, that guy, Chicken, if you remember, he went by the name oh, Chicken. Sure. Yeah, I remember when he was big in Montreal. Yeah, like that's like a big story within comedy. This guy got this huge development deal. And then uh, it was talked in the comedy industry that his manager pulled him from his shows because he didn't want him to, he didn't want to risk the deal being taken away because it wasn't finalized. Was this true? I don't remember. I had heard I that. Had heard, I had heard that they bought him a car. Like I heard a bunch of wacky stories, but he was like, I remember that a lot of comics were really upset because he wasn't that good and he only had a few minutes of material. I, I may be totally miss, you know, it's been a long time and my memory is not what it used to be, but that uh, there was a lot of controversy about him being in Montreal that he, he, he amongst the comics where it was like, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't deserve it. Yes. That's what it was. It was <coughs> like, he didn't pay his dues. He was yeah. new. Which is that would never happen now. No, new people do really well all the time in show business. But back then, comedians, yeah, they were angry at him. Huge development deal, and he all he, he used to come out on stage to music, and he would just act crazy and have sex with the with the stool on stage, and that was what the the talk was. And he came walking in the room at the improv while McKinney and Anthony Clark are talking. And I go, oh, here comes that fucking chi-. I said it out loud. I go, here comes that fucking chicken guy with the, oh, fu- oh, I hate this guy, right? And I saw Anthony Clark have this weird look in his eyes. <laughs> and and then uh, Anthony Clark walked away. And Justin McKinney goes, i never forget this. He goes, Joe, what are you doing? He goes, chicken and Anthony Clark are good friends. He goes... <laughs> He goes, people don't shit out shit on each other out here in LA. I'm like, they don't? He's like, no, <laughs> they don't. And then uh I kind of learned my lesson that, you know, you might not want to talk bad because it could come back to haunt you, you know. And uh it's just so weird that the comedy business is so, so evil now and that no comedians don't care. I mean, oh my God. So, but do, 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 does that to ask you about your career i mean i would think did you ever have to learn the hard way that um you can't talk about things right i say it all the time like next year will be my 30th year in this business and um people people ask me this stuff like they're like how do you you know what do you think you know, they'll, they'll, they'll ask me like how I am right now, where I just, I'll say whatever I need to say. I've learned how to be very diplomatic about what I'm saying, but 
as you know, like I'm pretty blunt sometimes and very straightforward. And um, I've, I have fallen down and failed so many times in my career mm-hmm. that I'm just not afraid to fail anymore. Like I'm just, it's just used to it, you know, and it's kind of like comics. I mean, this business, whether you're on this side or the other side is like 99% rejection. Right. You know? and, and, that- and close calls, like even you and I, like when we, all, when we sold that television show, when Wendy was going to do the show and then we could, we just couldn't get it. Go- it was like, finally, we had worked so hard on that freaking thing. And then, it just didn't go right. Ah, like, uh. yeah. So yeah, there's millions of those. So, I mean, talk about your, I don't know if you would even call them pretending days. I mean, um, because you're one of those guys that started off a little bit. Didn't you do stand up for like a really short time or was that Barry yeah. cats? I get you and it mixed yeah, both up. of us. Both of <laughs> well, us. Yeah. But he kept doing it. Like when I was working in the Boston comedy club, I had stopped comedy. Um, Barry would still host the shows, <laughs> you know, oh. there were, there were nights where he would get up there and he'd be the host of the show and he'd do the same freaking jokes. I mean, for right. years, so, <laughs> like never wrote a new joke. So how did you get, how did you, and, and, and when did you start really liking comedy? Like, how did that happen? What, like, what were you like as a kid? Were you someone who liked comedy or did, how, well, how did it evolve? I loved comedy. I mean, like it goes back to National Lampoon had an album, like a remember comedy albums, actual albums. Yes. It was called That's Not Funny, That's Sick. And it was like all these like funny bits and and it was National Lampoon put it out. And I thought that was great. And then my bedroom was right down the hall from my parents and from my bed where it was situated, I could see down the hall. And if my parents' door was open, I could see their TV. And every night, my father and mother would watch The Tonight Show. And if there was a comic on, I would run to their doorway and, like, crouch down. And, like, they didn't know I was there, but I just wanted to listen to the comics. Right. And then that just progressed to sitcoms and the Bob Newhart show and Mary Tyler Moore and all of those kinds of things. And then my dad and I would watch all the... Uh, Dean Martin roasts together and um, and then you know when cable TV and and then when Eddie Murphy's Raw came out I think it was Raw or Delirious it was one of the ones that was just I memorized that entire album I knew I could verbatim do it I can't do it anymore but um, and it was just a love and I wanted to do it and you know being, well, a Jew, being a Jew, my, my parents, my, my parents wanted me to have a real job and and would never let me do it or try it. That's what's funny. It's like Jewish people want their kids to, you know, education is huge, right? I always say that's my uh, my pro my pro racism. On uh, I, <laughs> I do a bit about how you you're not racist if it's compliments, but uh, yeah. Uh, Jewish people are big on education, but what must be like a double-edged sword is Jewish people love comedy and they're, and they're, and they're so funny. Most of the time, every Jewish person I meet, like makes me laugh. Uh, and, um, so it's like, they don't want you to do comedy, but they love comedy. Yeah. I mean, look, comedy, my father is really funny. My mother's pretty funny. Um, they didn't want me to do it for a living. I think that, you know, there is something about the persecution of the Jews and just, the you know, it's like 
look, for me, comedy was a savior from my childhood uh, because my parent, my father went to Cornell Engineering when he was 15 years old and got a perfect score in math on the SATs and like had his own company by the time he was 23 or 24 and is like incredibly, he's just a super, super smart guy. And then I popped out. I was the oldest and they were 22, my parents, when they had me. And I popped out and I was athletic and funny and I could care less about school. So they didn't know what to do with me. And it was tough because they just could not believe that their son was a C student. And I used to tell them, I was like, I was like, look, my C students rule the world. (laughs) Yeah, I was, that was going to be my, my next question is because I, because I've known you for so long, I know you played hockey. You were pretty, pretty into hockey and you're also an amazing guitar player. So like you got a lot of talent. So like how, how does it, it, it it go into starting standup comedy? Um, where do you go to college and what becomes like what you're trying to go for? Yeah. So the short story is I wanted to play professional hockey and I went and played uh, prep school hockey. I won't get into all the details. I went to Worcester Academy, played prep school hockey. And then I wanted to go to Boston university, but back then only Canadians were playing for the D one schools. There were very few Americans playing. So Mm -hmm. I wound up playing at Johnson and Wales. Uh, I was going, you know, I worked in hotels and restaurants growing up. So I went to school for hotel restaurant management. There was no, I wanted to be in entertainment. My parents wouldn't let me be an actor or comedian or anything that I wanted to do that to express myself. And you weren't one of those kids that would just do what you wanted that you didn't, you, you cared what they thought, obviously. Totally. I mean, you know, and I, you know, cause I thought that they were smarter than me. I thought that, you know, I thought I was an idiot. My father's really smart and I should just do what he says. (laughs) I've learned a lot since then. I was going to say, my son does the opposite. Uh, I wish I could get him to do everything I thought he should do. But so, but you, for some reason you, uh, you knew this, you, you, that's pretty insightful. I just trusted their opinion. I did. I mean, I did. And, and I also probably didn't, I just didn't want to have to deal with the wrath of not doing what they said. So it wasn't until I went to college that I really started to become more of me. The interesting thing, if I'm really going back, I would go to summer camp for the whole summer, eight weeks. And I was like the funny guy at camp and I was popular and funny. And I was really me at summer camp for those eight weeks. And then I'd come back home to New Jersey and I was a different guy. I was like who they wanted me to be. And don't, isn't it popular in a Jewish summer camp that you do like these shows at the end of it in front of all the other people at camp? This was not, it was a YMCA camp oh. it was cheaper, and it was all Jews. <laughs> but you didn't do sh- a show at all? Yeah, this was like, I mean, capture the flag and softball and water skiing and okay. all that kind of stuff. But there was no show. Okay. So... Uh, I mean, it was, you know, it was that kind of thing and I loved it and, and it really kind of set, it set, what, what it did was it made me realize at a very young age that I was someone else than who my parents wanted me to be. And I just kind of wrote it out because I was under their roof and, you know, there was a lot of pressure to do, uh, well in school. Right. 
And, you know, like I said, I just, and it wasn't that I didn't have the capability. I'm sure I had learning disabilities or ADD or whatever. I just could not pay attention. When I did pay attention, I did fine. But most of the time I was daydreaming. It seems like, um, I guess people in comedy, you probably notice this, comedians and people that are on the other side of the comedy industry are very similar. And I would say ADD is probably like a 90% in comedy for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why we all it's like it's probably because we're smart, but we have trouble in school because of a learning disability. And then somehow performance comes in. OK, so so then college and then hockey. And then what happens where hockey's out of the picture? So just um, just that you weren't well, in the best school, you were like, OK, I can't I can't do this. I, I couldn't well, get into hockey. a D1 school. Yeah, I mean, look, I was, I was, I, and I still play. I mean, pre-pandemic, I was still playing three days a week. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it just, you know, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna play in the NHL. It was more of a dream than anything else. I wanted to do it, and I was trying to do it, but it just wasn't gonna happen. And my parents didn't have the know-how. Um, right. You know, I was playing junior hockey when I was fifteen and going up to Canada and stuff like that. The next youngest guy on my team, I think, was 17 or 18 years old. And most of the guys were 20 and 21. Right. So, uh, but anyway, it, you know, I went to Johnson & Wales to play. And then senior year, I took a public speaking class. And this is really the beginning of the comedy thing where um, I took a public speaking class. I never did the homework or whatever. And I would just kind of get up there and tell stories, oddly enough, about my father and, you know, when, you know, my father, like, you know, went to school for hotel restaurant management. So I was home over one of the breaks and my father wakes me up at one o'clock in the morning. My dad's like 280 pounds. He wakes me up. I'm like, what do you do? Why? <laughs> he says, come on, come, come hang out with me. I haven't seen you in a while. Like it's one o'clock in the morning. He goes, I know. Come on, let's go down. Let's have a bite to eat. I'm like, well, what do you want to eat? He goes, how long would it take to cook a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> like it was shit. Like, <laughs> so I would tell stories like that. And then, um, so anyway, long story, I would, uh, my public speaking teacher uh, thought I was funny. And for my, my senior exam, for my final exam, he booked me at periwinkles in providence rhode island in the mall and uh and i did five minutes and that was my final exam what so, he took yeah. you to a comedy club for your class and and he graded that he, he <laughs> was what he was trying to do and he told me this he said you know look you do fine you're not afraid to get up in front of you you know but the fact that you're funny and that you're doing this um he said i'm just trying to encourage you because you should do stand-up comedy you're funny and and I did it, you know, I got up there and I did my five minutes and that was the beginning of everything. And then fast forward to I graduate and, you know, I'm in the restaurant business. And then I finally was made I was a restaurant consultant after a while and I moved into the city and I just started doing all the open mics. And that's where like it was Greg Giraldo and Jim Gaffigan and Jeff. He was Jeff Lifschultz now, as you know, is Jeff uh, Ross right. now. But those were the guys that I was hanging out with. And I think it was Jeff 
that introduced me to uh, Jason Steinberg and Barry. And Barry liked the fact that I had restaurant background and he had the Boston Comedy Club. So I said, well, I'll help you build up the club and you teach me how to manage because I liked doing stand-up, but I also looked at the future and I was like, I don't know if I want to spend every weekend on the road. I want to have a family. I don't want to, I don't like, I don't love to travel. So there are parts of being a stand-up comic that I, I didn't know if it was going to work. That's you know, funny because because you probably you probably travel more than most comedians, but you probably didn't realize that representing comedians. I mean, it's just L.A. to New York, L.A. to New York, L.A. to New York, and then going to some comedy festivals. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you guys, you guys are on the road, you know, a few weekends a month. Where I'm, you know, for the most part, I'm home. Right. You know. So so so. How does the transition happen and why does the transition happen? You to management? Yeah. Um and you know, how like, long were you doing how long were you doing stand up? Maybe 6 to 9 months. Oh, short. You know? Okay. And what It was what, really short. You didn't you even know? give it a chance really. I mean, everybody kind of stinks for that first year. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll you remember Gladys Simon? Yes. So Gladys had her club on top of Coldwater's. It was called Gladys's Comedy Club. Uh-huh. And you know, look, I, you know, I, I, it was the middle of the summer, and it was like maybe the fifth or sixth time. And you would go up to Gladys's, and you would sign up and pay your five bucks or whatever it was to perform. And it was the middle of the summer, and I'm a hockey player, so my legs are pretty developed and big. I've been playing ice hockey since I'm yeah. five years old. You're all ass and legs when you're playing Yeah, <laughs> and I have trouble finding jeans and stuff like that. And so I'm wearing shorts, and Gladys was running the club, and she was the MC. And my turn finally comes. And she, she gets up there, and she says, well, this next guy, I don't know if he's funny or not, but man, does he have nice legs. <laughs> That's the hardest thing to follow. Yeah, I'm like, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> like, now everybody's staring at my legs. Yeah, and comedians usually never want to wear shorts. And you're like, shorts and legs, okay. Yeah, and, and- so I, I did it for a while. And then and then Jeff introduced me to Barry, and I start, I kind of made the transition. Yeah, well, people who are listening don't know Barry Katz is uh, is another guy that's like he just said earlier did comedy, and then you know went on to manage a, a lot of huge acts, and he's still still a manager. I mean, from from Louis C.K. to Daryl Hammond on SNL. I'm trying to think. He managed well, everybody. Was actually mine. He was your client first. Yeah, so I was running the club, and Daryl came. When Daryl moved to the city, you know, I started seeing him first. And so I started talking to Daryl. I thought he was so talented. And I I said, can I manage you? I work with this guy, Barry Katz. And he said yes. And then I introduced him to Barry and I'm managing him. And then Barry helped get him on Saturday Night Live. And, uh, uh, And then Barry fired me. <laughs> well, that's what I was about to say because, yeah, my memory's kicking in. You, the Steinbergs, you guys all worked for Barry Katz at one time before yeah. you had your own management companies. So, so how do you get the job for Barry Katz? 
Well, Jeff introduced me to Jason Steinberg, and on the, and Jason was working for Barry. He was basically Barry's right hand man, and so I had this interview with Jason, which I've made fun of him about since. But the interview, like I literally sat next to Jason's desk for two hours, and Jason just worked. And every <laughs> once in a while, he would ask me a question, and I just sat there like an idiot because I'm just like, all right, I don't know what to do with this. You know, he's, he was younger than me and he's in the business and he's, and, uh, is that my phone that's making that sound? No, sorry. Uh, okay. my, so talk about a pretender. So you, you're, li how old are you at this time that you stop doing stand up and you start, man, you start trying to get, you know, I guess you would think in your head trying to be a manager. You must have to totally fake that. Like you, how could you know anything about it? You don't, um, how, how did you guess your way how to manage comedians? I, uh, wait, do you want me to shut the notifications off? I'm like, cause that's probably what it is. My right? clients, my clients are starting to blow me up on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. See if you can shut your notifications off for 25 minutes. Um, Okay. Or put your headphones on. Maybe I wouldn't. Nah, hear I, it, I should I... notifications off. Um, I didn't know how to manage. You know, I started. And how, well, answer the first question. How old are you when you stop doing? And, and are you doing both at the same time? Are you still doing stand up a little bit? No. You just stopped. Here's what happened with stand up, which really was probably, you know, like you said earlier, like I'm a guitar player. I love playing the guitar. And there was a time where I thought, you know what, I want to be a music manager. So management was already kind of in my head. And I read this book by this guy, Ken Pressman, all about the music industry. And it just, you know, it just sounded not as exciting as I thought it was going to be. Um, so then when I found out a little bit more about comedy management, it started to become a little, that, that made, I was a little more excited about right. doing that. And then you just but, you just stop stand up and then well no what happened was so i had that in my head and then i did an open mic night one night at the original improv on you know it was like what a 44th street or whatever it was off 10. yeah and i get on stage and at the time like i said most of my material was just about my parents and like the shit from my childhood and my dad being fat and you know that kind of stuff and just before, maybe maybe three comics before I'm going to go on, my parents walk into the club with two of their friends, and they sit in the front row. Now, Joe, you, <laughs> I know you know, yeah. So, but they know uh, they know you're a comedian. It's not a surprise. Like, no, it's they not know. A, it's not a Tom Hanks in Punchline moment where he starts <laughs> crying and he has a mental breakdown because his dad's there and he thinks he's a doctor. <laughs> no, it, no, it was me kind of like, I was like, you know, I, I told them, I'm like, look, I've been doing stand up at night. I right. go out and I do it and I'm pretty good and blah, blah, blah. So they came so to they support the, you. Yeah. They were in the city one night with their mm -hmm. friends having dinner and they're like, you know what? He's performing. Let's go over. And they came over and I, I ate it. Like, I mean, I ate it. I mean, and I go outside and my parents, and the first thing my father says to me is, this is what you're going to do for a living. Really? really? 
And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. And remember Sam Brown? Yeah. So Sam, who has you know, since passed away, but uh, Sam was on that show and just crushed. And my parents thought he was really funny. And Sam, Sam was outside and Sam was actually being encouraging, like you should keep doing it. And, you know, you had some good stuff. You were just nervous. And, but that was the last time I ever did stand up. What? Oh, wow. That was the last time because it did, just freaked me. I was so intimidated by my parents being, they still, they had such a, like a power over me. I, I hadn't broke, cut the cord from them. Right. So I think all of it, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's divine intervention or just, you know, the world kind of making things happen in a certain way. And then it was a couple of weeks later that I met Barry and, and started working in his office. And then I would run the club at night. You know, so how, how do you meet Barry Katz? Through Jeff Ross. So Jeff and you were friends and what was yeah. Jeff Ross being represented by Barry? Yeah, he was with New York Entertainment. Remember Barry had like the 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 college booking thing? Yes, yes. So he was managing like Chappelle and Jay Moore and people like that and then he had the booking the college booking division that Carrie Brazier used to run. Right. Remember oh, okay. her? Yeah. So he introduces so, you to Barry and Barry he introduces says me to Jason. Oh, and then Jason. I sat by Jason's desk. That's right. Okay. And that's <laughs> I how you thought I was being punked, but you know, <laughs> punked didn't, <laughs> I was like this guy, Yeah. I didn't, you know, and Jason's kind of quirky, but Jason and I turned out to be really good friends. And, um, and Jason was running the club. And so Jason showed me the ropes after I sat there for like two hours. I said, well, I think I got to go. He goes, all right, cool. Well, do you want to work here? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> he said, all right, we'll start next week. And is there, and, how does it work? Is there pay when they start yeah. here? Or you're just, how's it work? So as a restaurant consultant, I'm making like 112, I think I was 26 years old. I was making about a hundred and 120,000 a year as a restaurant consultant. That's I had a lot. Own, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was doing Back really then. well. I had my own single, you know, apartment on the Upper East Side. I had a company car. I had, you know, the whole thing. Like it was really a sweet and I quit. I quit that job and Barry paid me $112 a week and I went into horrible debt. I had to bring a roommate in, like I had to build one of those walls in my living room. So, you know, the roommate could live in the, essentially the room we built in the living room. And I, and I went into like $50,000 worth of debt. It was bad, you know, but I wanted to be in the business. I, I needed to do this. It got to a point where, I just, I hated the restaurant business. I didn't care. And I felt like, you know, I'd read so many of those books, like that basically were saying, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And it's true. You know, it's true. Like this business is hard, you know, you, you, you know, you know, Joe, but I, I look at what some of my friends do for a living and oh my God, I feel like, yeah, you feel like <laughs> you struck gold, right? So, what? so you're yeah. working over there. So does he, do you have your own club? How does it start? It's like, I guess people that aren't in the business that are listening to this probably only know from like watching Entourage, what they can imagine. Yeah. Like you're like, uh, you're, you, what was his name? E on Entourage. E. He had his own clients, but like, I'm guessing what, what is, what is even your day-to-day -day job when you started a management company and you're this new guy that doesn't know that much like you don't have your own clients they don't allow you to sign people 
No. And that's one of the reasons why, like, I loved Entourage, except for that thing with E, where it's like he never was a manager before. And all of a sudden he's reading scripts and he knows <laughs> which ones are good and which ones are bad. And but I'm like, it drove me nuts. <laughs> like, but uh, Barry, you know, I didn't really know everything about management. And, and like I said, uh, I was booking comedians in colleges. That's what I was basically doing. And I was watching what was happening. You know, I was part of Chappelle's life and Jay Moore's life and Jeff Ross and everybody else that Barry was managing. And then when Daryl came in, he was the first person that he, I was his manager. I didn't really know what it meant. And Barry really did all the work. Barry's the one who got him on Saturday Night Live. I had nothing to do with it except signing him. Right. And then Barry wanted to build the business. And I'm coming from a place where I'm a restaurant consultant. I went through business school. I, I think about it from a business perspective. So I said to Barry, look, you have no computers here. You have no systems here. You have no, let me help build the business. I'll come up with a business plan. And we basically had this agreement. All right, you come up with a business plan and I will... In in over a period of 10 years, I'll acquire a percentage of the business that I'm helping build and you'll teach me how to manage. And that was kind of like, you know, he's like, all right, we'll come up with the plan. And Maureen Tarrin, who was working at Montreal at the time, uh, was looking to come to New York and, and get into management. And she didn't want to work for Barry. And I convinced her. I showed her my plan. She winds up coming to New York uh, as soon as I hired or as soon as Barry hired Maureen. Two weeks later, Barry takes me out and we went to Saturday Night Live. Jay, Jay Moore was on SNL. It's two o'clock in the morning. We're, it was after the after party of SNL and we go for, for like a late breakfast or an early breakfast. It's mm -hmm. two o'clock. And he basically says to me, man, I'm going to do you the biggest favor I've ever done for you. And I said, what's that? He goes, I'm going to let you go. And I was like, what? And he fired me. That's he said, so weird. You know, Cause that's, that's, that's the scene of Jay Moore in, in, uh, in Jerry Maguire. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. And he, he said, With a I smile just on his face. Yeah. He's like, look, I, I just don't want to have a partner in my business. And so I'm not going to ever make you happy. And so I'm going to let you go now. And he let me go and I didn't have any clients and Daryl stayed there. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. My wife was pregnant with our first child and I was freaking out. And Caroline Hirsch and Joe Falzerano, who was the general manager at the time of Caroline's Comedy Club, they wanted to start a management company and they hired me. And I was making $20,000 a year, no bonus. I was working out of the basement of Caroline's. And I signed, you know, uh, Greg Giraldo and uh, um, I was working with Gaffin for a very short period of time and Patrice O'Neill and Jim Norton and Florentine and Rich Boss and all these guys. And I sold my first sitcom. And, you know, this is really where it comes in, the pretender of it all, where I had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely talk about I, I, totally pretending to be a manager like I knew what I was doing and 
CAA would, would do you want? I wanted to go backwards for a sure. second because there was sure. one thing I was kind of interested in what you just said because because I know what's really big in in management in all industries you know from music to acting whatever it's like if you represented somebody and you did something for somebody it's almost like how like actors and comedians we get residual money forever for certain things we got that the money keeps coming because it's you know you caught you own the copyrights so like if you represented people when you were at barry's place and you were doing things for barry's company and then he just fires you do you get anything or you just you're just flat at zero again like you you got it daryl hammond's there and you're gone and you brought him in there you don't get anything from saturday night live now it's gone when you're out of how does it work i never got anything anyway I got my $112 a week. That's <laughs> that it. You weren't it. getting the percentage yet. That was what you, you had asked for the percentage and he just dropped you. No, what I had asked him for was like, I was saying to him, you know, look, because it, it makes he, sense for him to mentor you and then give you a percentage and you to deserve a percentage because now you're building it even bigger. I would think that it's similar to like, let's, let's make it small. Like, I had just found this out. This is hilarious, and I'm going to connect this to like a guy who works in a barber shop. They okay. rent the chair in the barber shop, yeah. and then they have. To, I think they still have to give a piece of all the hair that they cut, but they get yeah. to keep most of their money. They're just paying to rent that chair, where it's the same as you were paying to be under his umbrella, and then you get a piece of people that you bring in, and then. That's where it gets weird, where they just let you go, and it doesn't seem fair. But I guess well, showbiz isn't fair. It's definitely not fair. Um, but that wasn't really what I was saying. It's like I didn't even know that I could ask for a piece of Daryl, right? Mm -hmm. um, what I was saying was I came out of business school, and here's a guy in Barry who used to be a stand-up comedian and was booking comedy shows in Boston and then moves to New York to be a big-time manager. You know, and he didn't know anything about business. And I mean, nothing about right. business. Yeah, you're, and, you, you had something to offer and then he right. decided to not take it. Well, yeah. and But what I had said to him is, look, if I'm going to help you build a business, I want a piece of what I'm helping you build. Yeah, you know? I think that's a correct thing to ask. Yeah. And he, he, he didn't say yes and he didn't say no. He said, okay, put together a plan. Right. So I put together the plan, and then part of that was bringing Maureen in, which we did. And then he basically said, yeah, I don't want to do the plan. And then he hired Brian Volkweiss a few years later, and they basically did the plan. And it, it backfired on Barry because from what I understand, I mean, Brian and Barry sold the company, and then Brian somehow figured out how to get Barry out of the business. You know, so Barry was back on his own. I wasn't close to it, so I don't know the whole story. But gotcha. from my perspective, that's what it looked like happened. Well, from a com from a stand-up comedian's perspective, I'm always amazed that when you manage talent, or if you work in a comedy club as like the guy who's the manager of the comedy club, I've never seen people 
switch jobs so it's like you guys seem to always know you can like if you're an agent it feels like you guys switch agencies a lot sometimes you see agents becoming managers and managers going in to agents that's the number one question you know do you still get that question what's the difference between a manager and an agent people love to ask that one um yeah the, the fun thing is the funny thing is that a lot of times talent is asking what the difference is yeah. Not even people outside of the industry. Right. So I, I understand. So I understand. And, and that's how you get to Caroline's, um, which is the, those relationships, everything in every time I talk to people on my podcast, it's like, it's why I get so mad at young people because they don't go out there and try to make these relationships. They're on their phones and they're on the internet nonstop. I'm like, you got to, these relationships keep getting you jobs, right? So, so okay. So back to Caroline's. So now you're you're, you're starting yeah, so, you're starting your own thing now. Well, no, I'm starting the management company for Caroline's. Right. And so, so what do they give you a percentage? Is that how it works? Okay. Yeah. So so the deal that I had made with Caroline, what coming in, it was a handshake agreement, but was uh, she was paying me twenty grand a year. Like I said, no bonuses, no nothing, and I'm working out of the club, uh, out of the basement of the club in the office. Right. And, and, and you're, how old are you now? About 28? Yeah. And you're not thinking in your head at all, why don't I just start my own management business? You don't know enough yet to try to do it on your own. Yeah, I definitely don't know enough. Um, actually, no. I, yeah, I was, I was probably like 28 or 29, something like that. And, right. and um, Do you go to your dad at all again? And he's like, Keep learning. Don't start your own business yet. I could no. He wasn't giving you no, like business father, advice. No, when I quit my job as a consultant and went into the entertainment business, my father said, "Don't look at me. I'm not. I'm not a safety net for you anymore. Like if you're going to make this choice, which I think is foolish, uh, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not saving you. So, okay. and I think it was a way of deep down inside. I knew that he would never let me hit the ground. You know, but he was definitely trying to intimidate me to not do it. But I had to do it. I could not stay in the the restaurant business anymore. Mm -hmm. So with Caroline's, um, I signed Greg Giraldo, you know, who's my buddy and a bunch of these other guys. And and I'm guessing, I mean, it's obvious, but because you're at Caroline's, are you watching these guys go up and you decide who, and you're you have to have an eye and decide who you like and you can yeah. sign them if you want? Yeah, they, they give you that thing. power. Oh yeah, it was it was totally up to me who I was signing and who I was, but it was building the Caroline's, you know, management mm -hmm. company. So uh, is, Ger is Geraldo your first client? You said Geraldo was one of them. Yeah, and, uh, well, Jay, actually, I shouldn't say that I didn't bring any. Two people came over with me. One of them was Mario Cantone. Okay, uh, he was with me at Barry's and Jr. Havlin. Okay, now and then he uh, for people that don't know, I guess you, you, they'll probably know who Mario Cantone is. But Mario's like big on Broadway. He gets he's a Sex in the City actor, super big comedian. And then J.R. Havlin becomes a staff writer at Conan O'Brien, or was it uh, no, the Daily, Daily Show? Daily Show for many, many, many years. Which which I got him that gig. Okay, Sweet. so um, so at Caroline's. Uh, Geraldo, you know, Montre the Montreal auditions were coming up and 
what Barry had, Barry basically invented new faces, not intentionally. Um, I don't know if you want to hear that story or not, but basically Montreal started doing an official new faces. And what they did was they gave all of the big agencies like two guaranteed slots where at the time, so CAA had two guaranteed slots or one guaranteed slot. And this agent, Cheryl Bear, who was at CAA, loved Greg Giraldo. She came to New York and she said, I want him to be CAA's choice for new faces. And we signed with CAA. And, and Greg blew up in Montreal. Everybody wanted to do deals with him all the network studios. And this is back in the day where network presidents were walking around, you know, it was like, it was unbelievable. And Greg and I flew to Los Angeles and I think we did about 16 or 17 meetings in, in two weeks with studios and networks. And, and we wound up making a deal at ABC for like, you know, maybe two or $300,000 and fast forward to, we we shot a pilot and the pilot got on the air well we, and we got to spin backwards a little here too it's right. like you got geraldo who's a new face so he's obviously a new face he's new yeah. and now rick dorfman's his manager and taking him to montreal where all these people are introduced you know are loving him so that's new for you right and oh. now, and now you're in LA taking meetings. Are you, are you pretending like you know what the fuck you're doing, or did someone give you some advice, or what? Well, that's the thing is Cheryl kind of held my hand through the whole thing. So she, what Cheryl would do, she was great. She'd been around the business for a long time. Like her uncle is Henry Winkler, and she'd grown up in the business. Oh, okay. And so I was like her puppy dog, and that's why I'm so like talk about pretending. You know, I'm I'm. All these people are coming up to me because I'm, I'm his manager. And I don't know who any of these network people are. Cheryl knows who they are. So Cheryl would say, Rick, see those people over there? That's CBS. Go over to them and say that, say that, uh, that um, we'd love to meet, that, that we'd love for them to meet Greg Giraldo, but we're talking to ABC right now. And we're hoping that they'll stay, stick around to meet him. And she would have me do stuff like that. So all the different networks and studios knew that each other were talking about Greg and wanted to meet with Greg. So at the time, the fear factor of missing out on Greg. So it created this hype about him. Mm -hmm. And then you're making me want to have to do an edit on this podcast where this cuts to that scene in Jerry Maguire, where he's with Cuba Gooding and they're in the lobby, right? Of the NFL draft. It's the same yeah. thing. It's it's you're right. It's it was exactly that. And we would do things like the bar. This is when the Delta Hotel was the home base for the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And there was one bar and everybody would cram into this bar. Like you, you, it was like packed like sardines. But she taught me how to play this game of telephone where she would say, start at this end, talk to everybody you can and tell people that ABC and CBS want to do deals with Greg Giraldo. Because by the time you got to the other end of the bar, people were saying, oh, I heard you're doing a deal with Universal. I heard you're doing a deal with NBC. Because the rumor mill of the industry being packed in the bar, so it created this huge hype. 
So by the time we flew out to LA, everyone wanted to be in business with, with Greg. And it was the beginning of diversity where they were dying to have a Latin based show. And Greg was Colombian and uh, Dominican, I think. Colombian and, not sorry, Colombian and Spanish. Right. And so, and he had graduated Harvard Law. And so we did common law. And I'll never forget this. You know, we're all, we're all friends with Ray Romano and Rory, his manager. And we shot our show on the same, we shot the pilot on the same lot as Ray shot the pilot for Everybody Loves Rain. And so Rory and I decided, well, let's just have our rap parties together since we're all friends. So the two shows came together. After the R shooting, the taping, everyone at ABC is going nuts. Like, this is going to be the best show ever. And CBS was not happy with how Ray's show went. So Ray's kind of moping around. Rory's like, yeah, you know, it went okay. It could have gone a little bit. And we're like, we're going to be rich and famous. And so sure enough, you know what the what happens? You know, we go, we got on the air, and then ABC was bought by Disney that summer. So they moved our show to Saturday night after coach. So we they buried us to try and kill the show, which they did after nine episodes. And Everybody Loves Raymond goes on to be one of the biggest shows in history. Everybody always a few of my well, not everybody, a few of my comedian friends when we all lived in LA they used to say that the comedy or the or show business is just like high school and everything you just explains is like high school or even these high school movies where you see the nerd do like become friends with the pretty girl and then they play that and it makes yep. every girl in the school want to have sex with the kid like what was that movie uh with yeah. Patrick Dempsey I trying to remember yeah yeah where uh, he was like he he paid the girl right paid the girl to like date him or look like she was dating him and it made every girl like him it, so you know you played all the cards right and you know you did everything correct and then it's still you know for people like me that are you know on the other you know nine episodes is pretty good a lot of people don't even get to shoot the pilot you know yeah. so you got to shoot the pilot you make nine episodes and is and greg Giraldo. uh you know, and then it gets canceled, but you still have Greg. And what 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 comes after that? Well, here's the pretender part. Of it. Did any pretending part happen where you're like, yeah. I fucked that up because I didn't no. know enough? No, but this is what I I felt so overwhelmed by the situation. I mean, here I am, you know, my late late twenties, early thirties, and I'm in Hollywood, and I'm meeting with the heads of networks and the heads of the studios and everybody's throwing these huge numbers at us. And I've got Les Moonves calling me on the phone, my cell phone saying, don't make a deal with anyone until you talk to me last. And like stuff like that. It was, you know, a meeting with, you know, uh, Bob Iger and Eisner and, you know, cause they were at Disney or, or they were at, they were at uh, ABC at the time. Like mm -hmm. it was, so overwhelming and i had no idea what i was doing i didn't know what to and this is talk about being a pretender i i told very few people this but it doesn't matter that greg and i were sharing a hotel room back at the you know 
And after probably the third That's or great, fourth just day, that, that you guys are sharing a room. We were sharing days. a hotel room. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, had a manager were, once that let me live in his house in L.A. You did? Yeah, this guy, oh, Mike, Michael Goldman, who represents, I think he still represents Nick Cannon. He let me live in his house because he knew he was going to get the development deal. He had the relationship. Yeah. I, I was almost like Greg Brady, the guy that fit the suit. You know, he fit the suit. You remember the Greg Brady episode? Yeah, he got course. the record Johnny deal. Bravo. Johnny Bravo fit the suit. <laughs> I I think he knew that I was a young guy with a funny stand-up act, and it was like he could sell uh, David Tochterman, uh, another guy, so easily, and he yeah. did that. And I still look at that as a negative in my career, even though I made a bunch of money and was able to buy my first house. I fired... Peter Principato to go to Michael Goldman and then Peter Principato ends up becoming this huge, huge manager. And I'm like, I might have blown my career by going for the instant money. But you yeah. don't you don't know. You 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 we're all pretending for a while there. Yeah. Well, Greg and I were it was probably it was um maybe three or four days in and and it's after all these meetings, a lot of these places They'd say, oh, let us take you for dinner. Let us take you. So we were getting wined and dined on top of this. And I just, I'm so out of my element. I just have no idea about Hollywood or television or how the, I don't know the difference between like a studio. Like it was so confusing to me. And Cheryl was trying to teach me. I don't know any of these people. Are you letting your client know these insecurities? I I don't imagine you are. You always seem like like a good actor. Like that's my story is that we went back to the hotel room. And I was just honest with Greg and I literally started to cry. And I was like, I just don't know what I'm doing. I feel beyond out of place. I feel like I'm going to fuck things up for you. And I have no place here. And Greg is like, you think I know what the fuck they're talking about? I have no idea what they're talking about. I have no idea what to do. He goes, you and I are in this together. So let's just figure it out together. And I was I, I was lucky that I had Greg, you know, to say that and to be that way, because I'm just not one that I can't just be honest about what's going on. I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was I met all of those people. All of those people then turned to me as like, you have an eye for talent. So who else do you have? And I learned how to sell a television show. I learned how to develop a television show because I was in the writer's room with Greg when we wrote the pilot. Um, I watched the whole production. I was a producer on the show. So I learned the whole game. And then it was easy for me to turn around and replicate, oh, now I know how to do this. And I know who to call because I've got all their information. And then I was able to replicate it. And you were willing... You were willing to throw yourself in the mix. That's where people fail and is the number one common thing on my podcast is the willingness to to be a pretender is what can get you to be a contender is that, you know, it's just like comedy. You start as an open micer and if you're willing to stick it out, usually it will flip at some point unless you're horrendous. <laughs> you can yeah. stay terrible. So, but you know, if you're intelligent, you can pull back and you can look at what you did right and look at what you did wrong and, and move forward. Okay. So what's next? Well, like you said, I mean, it's fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I understood how to develop and sell a television show mm-hmm. and I had all the contacts everywhere. 
Right. So and you still just, have Greg Giraldo, who even though his pilot didn't get picked up, he's a phenom. He's an amazing comedic talent. Yeah, well, the, the pilot did get picked up, and it was oh, only yeah, I mean that it got episodes. nine episodes and gets yeah. canceled, but that doesn't mean he's out of the business. Like you no. know, unless no, you're on, sold in, I sold like another eleven or twelve television shows for him over the course of you know. We were together his entire career, and then unfortunately the drugs and the alcohol kind of took its toll, and we weren't together for like the last two years of his life. Mm -hmm. But we stayed close, and when he was, you know, when he was on his deathbed in the hospital, Marianne, his wife, called me, and I went down there, and I was one of the few, like me and Colin Quinn, uh, were one of the few that got to see him and spend time with him. He was already in a coma, mm -hmm. but. Uh, just before he passed, which, you know, it, that's the other side of the business, right? Yeah, I was going to say that that's all. I read uh, Bernie Brillstein's book. So, I mean, uh, how many different comedians did he represent that went down that path? So, I mean, that's that's a common path if, if you're in the comedy business and yeah. creative business. So that's a super negative of it. You get close to somebody. Um, so... So, so, so who do you, what, what is the next level? What would you say is the next tier? And I don't want to do it. You know, I know we could do a three hour interview on your yeah, career yeah. and we'll, we'll keep it to like 10 more minutes. How mm -hmm. do we get to like, okay. So Greg's show common law, nine episodes done. And now you're still at Caroline's. There's a lot that happens from there. So. Yeah, well, the you know the Daily Show was starting with Craig Kilborn, and I put a client J.R. Havlin and Tom Johnson and on as writers, and I sold a short form talk show, a two minute talk show to A and E with Dave Juskow and Geraldo Dave had his Juskow. thing, and so fast forward to, you know, a lot of money came in that year, um, and it things didn't work out with Caroline. We were, you know, I thought we had a certain deal and she said we didn't make any money. And I called my attorney and basically I called all the clients and said, I'm leaving and I'm starting my own company tomorrow. And I called Caroline and I started the next day on my dining room table. So you Jerry Maguire again. <laughs> Jerry Maguire. Uh, you, you know, there, who was your Renee Zellweger? Well, that. my wife, your wife, was your wife <laughs> yeah, working for you when you uh, started no, your own business? No, my wife was at Scholastic and thank God. I mean, she was in the marketing department at the time and she, you know, at the time she was making like $70,000. So, you know, I had the space, the, the room to grow my business. And mm -hmm. that first year, I think I made $14,000. And then the next year I sold a big development deal for Mike Siegel and, and then it just kept going. <clears throat> I kept making development deal after development deal year after year after year. And when you're talking about numbers that were, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars for a guy working by himself off of his dining room table, those commissions were thirty, forty, and fifty thousand dollars. So to have that coming in on top of, you know, the road work and everything else. You know, you, you cobble together a little bit of a living until I could afford to have my own office. And then, um, you know, I did what I had to do to try and keep money coming in. So when when Chris Mazzilli started Gotham Comedy Club, I was the first booker of Gotham Comedy Club where 
I was managing and I, he was paying me weekly to book the club. That's yeah. That's now that I think about it, that's, there's not a lot of guys that did that, 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 you know, that doesn't really exist anymore for some weird reason. You would think it would because they're, that's where you find the talent at the comedy club, right? How come yeah. there aren't, what has changed in the comedy business that you've seen in the last 10 years with, you know, social media, YouTube, and you see, that's probably what happened. They stopped going to ground zero, which is the comedy club is to find their, to make a personal relationship with a client. Cause I remember when we start, when I was coming through it, it was like a no brainer. You wanted to sign with the guy that owned the comedy club or ran yeah. the comedy club, because now you get to go on stage every night of the week at that comedy right. club. But I had it backfire with, with the guys that own the stand manage me for a while, because then they don't want to, you, you, you stop working with them now that you're not going to work at that comedy club ever again, forever. So you were, you bounced out of the comedy club. So how is that what changed the internet and, and, and how they don't find the talent at the clubs anymore? No, I think that, I think you do find clients, the clubs, but when you get to a certain level, like, Look, first of all, I made choices. You and I have talked about this. Um, I made choices. I have two kids and being a father to them is way more important to me than anything else in the world. So I wanted to be at their games and all those kinds of things. And um, so I started going out less, but I also had started building a reputation for myself. So people started coming to me and asking me to represent them. And then different agents that liked working with me said, Hey, so-and-so is leaving his manager. Would you be interested? And then, you know, so it became more of a, I was getting my clients from other places than finding someone and developing them. I was still going out from time to time, but not the way I was out every single night for years. Yeah. I was going to say that's probably something huge that has changed is the manager developing the talent. Um, they're usually, I still do a lot of that. Yeah. It's still my style. So you went. So now the ne- the last tier of your story is really. So you you start your own business. It's it's going well, and now at some point because you're working for a company again. Yeah. So what is the uh, what's the change and what happens in your own business? So uh, you know I had my own company and my own and different incarnations where I partnered with guys in L.A., but I still owned my own company you know, with them or by myself for 21 years. And then I found um, uh, an investment guy, you know, a a venture capitalist. When I, when I broke off from my last company and just went out on my own again, Mm -hmm. found a venture capitalist that um, uh, wanted to be in the entertainment business. So how'd you find him? If you, you uh, Lynn Coplet, believe it or not, actually found him that Lynn wanted to do a a one hour comedy special and she was working with this woman, Taryn and Taryn worked for this guy, uh, this guy, Adam and Adam was a big like wall street guy Mm -hmm. and he wanted to be in entertainment. And I went to go have lunch with him to talk about the special for Lynn. And he didn't want to talk about the special. He's like, I'm not putting money into one project. I want to own a company. So, 
I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll do it with you. And we just, so we formed a company and we had that company for a few years. And then we turned around and sold that company to this guy, Danny Zappin, who started Maker Studios and started a new company called Zealot Networks and, you know, made some money on the sale of the company. And then that Zealot Networks folded after about, it didn't fold, but it basically fell apart. They, they bought too many companies in one shot. And, um, and John Rubenstein, who owns Authentic Talent and Literary, had been my buddy for decades and had always, we, we had this standing lunch. And whenever I would talk to him, you know, he was booking actors on jobs. That's what he was doing. And every time I would talk to him, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing branded entertainment. I sold this book. I'm doing this. Like I was always doing entrepreneurial things, selling television shows, creating animated shows. And um, he's like, you got to come over here and you got to teach my managers how to think entrepreneur in, in an entrepreneurial way. And it was just I, at a time in my life where, you know, I, I was tired of just paying all the bills and hoping that I was going to make money at the end of the year. And I was paying all these salaries and overhead and all of this stuff. And I was just like, all right, I want X amount a year. I want blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay. And so I've been over this October will be five years with authentic and I run the comedy division. I co-head development for the company and I run creative strategy for the company. So started a podcast network and I'm looking at, you know, maybe bringing in a creative agency, like all this other stuff that I see where the business is going and what we need to do and how management is changing. And development, we've got like 48 managers. There's 1,300 clients from Brie Larson to Gabby Sidibe to, you know, there's huge actors and people like that. And it's opened up my business where now I've got Fran Drescher and Terry, Terry Hatcher and people like that where it's, it's changed my business. So, and now it's been five years that I'm over there and I'm selling television shows and movies and, and books and podcasts and, and it's a lot of fun and I'm getting paid. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a no brainer in, you might have the only business that's out there where you can work under an umbrella, like a company and still have that feel of having your own business. Yeah. That, I don't does that I don't know if that exists anywhere else. Like as a stand-up comedian, as talent, we rarely, for some weird reason, but I think it's I think it's starting to change now because you're seeing a lot more comedians getting into that entrepreneurial thing and doing things on the side. Like I I, I remember hearing Joe Coy. I was on his podcast and he like bought a restaurant in Vegas <laughs> and he was using his uh, his huge social media following to help his restaurant business. And I was like, that's really cool. I love seeing comedian and, you know, or like a bill Burr starting his own big network, you know, all things comedy. You see these guys doing that. And it didn't used to be that way. We thought we had to just stay in this little thing. And we're, you know, that's probably the positive also of, of Corona over the last year. It's like, it's changed it for us again. And for you too, like now you're like, I don't need an office, right? Do you, are, do you guys ever going to go back into being in the same office together? What's, what's, what's the, what's 2022 going to look like for you and authentic? Well, I mean, you look, still have offices. Not, we still have offices we have in Brooklyn and we have in Culver city, but I haven't been there in over a year. And to be honest with you, 
I'm sitting in my house in Nantucket right yeah. now and I spend months and months at a time here, which is, it's a lot more, it's a lot more fun sitting up here and riding it out. Um, Your job must be, feel amazing now that you can do it from Nantucket. It's amazing. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I've sold like five television shows, a movie, just the way that we're doing this all right. over video. Right. I don't have to fly to LA. Like when, remember when we went out there and did all those meetings and we met with everybody? It's like, all Zoom now. It's all Zoom. Yeah, it's all Zoom, which, you know, that's all great. Um, but I was going to say, like, there's structures like this, you know, like real estate agents and insurance agents, they kind of work in these offices where they have the letterhead and they have the resources, you know, but they all kind of have their own businesses. Ours is definitely different. We work really closely together, but, you know, we can do what we want. And going back to the office is, you know, I'll go back, but I'm not going to go back five days a week. I'm going right. to, I'll go maybe once or twice a week and then work at home or I'll come up here. And as long as we're getting our work done, you know, John, our company doesn't care. And we had that before, before the COVID anyway, we could work from wherever we want. Right. Whenever. So it's, 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 <laughs> do, do you have a positive outlook in your head? Do you feel like you're a, a contender or what else would you like? What, what, what is it that you haven't achieved yet that you're like, well, I, if once I get this is it, or is that always going to be there once I need this, like what's, what's the big I, thing for you that you still want? I think as a hockey player, I'm just a naturally competitive person. Mm -hmm. So I still, I just, I want to win. I want to compete. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a contender, not because I'm the best manager in the world, or I should say the most successful manager, because there's certainly more successful managers than me, making mm -hmm. way more money and producing way more shows. But I figured out how to be in this business, make a nice living, um, and have a really, really balanced life. I've got and my wife is my best friend in the world. My children are really, I'm close, so close to my children and they're 26 and 23 now. And we've got really deep friendships with a lot of people and mm -hmm. family. And so I feel like I've figured out how to balance it out. I'm sure that if I spent more time in clubs or I moved to LA, my business would be different. I'd be worth a lot more money, but mm -hmm. how much more money do I need? Right. I still like going back to the competitive side of it. I still want to hit the ball over the fence one time. Right. And by that, I mean, I've had a lot of singles, doubles, and triples. What's the home run? The home run is like one blockbuster movie or one sit one sitcom that becomes, you know, or, or a television show that becomes, you know, like, Seinfeld, oh, my God. King of like, Queens, everybody loves Yeah, my everybody loves you know, or, or honestly, like my Ted Lasso or something like that, or what, you know, anything that's like that, like I really just hit it over the fence. And then you've, you've got some managers that are doing that, you know, numerous times a year because they're, you know, their clients are who they are. And I've got great clients, but I just haven't hit the ball over the fence. Right. Well, that's, that's, what's good about having that, uh, sports background it, you you'll, you know you'll never quit because you do have that and you know you'll keep trying to get the home run and you don't care if it's when you're 80 
You know what I mean? We're in a business we can work till we're really old, until our brain stops working. I guess. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I feel like, am I aging out? Because there's so much change and, you know, there's like, I'm not on the comedy scene. I don't, I, I can't name a lot of the comics that are out there now where I used to know every comedian in New York and LA. I knew everybody. Right. Now, like, I just don't, Me you know? Yeah. It's impossible. It's, there's too many now, you know, there's too many out there. And like you said, we're not, we're not all at the same places like we used to be everything is uh is socially or uh, virtually it's all virtual yeah. now so unless you know you're on a podcast every day of the week with 10 other uh performers it's it's it, it changed and you got to accept the change you know so yeah. but i also i have young managers who that's their job is yeah, to let them be the young guys yeah and then come back and tell me and then i'll get on those teams or i'll help or whatever Right. But I'm also like, you know, look, developing young comics, it's exciting. And every once in a while, someone comes by where I'm like, I have to be, I want to work with that person. Right. Um, like there's a guy, Stavros Halkius, that I'm working with right now. Like, Love he's Stavros. Fucking he's hilarious. Yeah. And I think he's amazing. And Chris Stefano, who's a client, who's hilarious. But Chris is, you know, Chris is more established. Than, um, but, but for the most part, I'll let my young guys do that. And then I'm trying to sign bigger people. Like, you know, I'm, um, you know, someone like Fran Drescher brings in a lot of money and she's a phenomenal person and she's insanely talented and she still has the desire and drive to work. So we're creating things and we're, you know, it's, and it's fun. And the same thing with Sherry O'Terry. I just sold the show with her last week. She's a phenom. I think she's, she's hilarious too. Hilarious. Well, I'm really glad, uh, I'm glad we got to do this uh, talk, and thanks for doing the podcast, man. Yeah, and no, uh, it, yeah. uh, I hope you don't get solicited from uh, unknown comedians <laughs> from this podcast. You know what? Is it, that like 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 when we get when comedians get an email to do a podcast? It's like getting jury duty. You're like, oh god, okay, I got to say yes to this. I bet it's the same for a manager when you get that unknown guy, and you got to go. All right, well, I got to look at his stuff. I guess Jesus. Because you said that, didn't you say something earlier about how they can just, they just submit their stuff to you, right? Un unsolicited. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I said it or Yeah, I get stuff all the time. I mean, every, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't get two or three. And it's not just comics. It's mm -hmm. screenwriters. It's people that know that I know how to sell a television show or book deals or whatever. So I get three, four a day of solicitation you know i can't take everybody on and you know it's it, it is the way it is but i will say one of the things that i'm getting tremendous pleasure about in my career now is giving back and and giving advice and um and mentoring a lot of the younger managers in our company and helping them build their business like it's a really good feeling to give back and to talk to people and even doing something like this. Like yeah, that's, that's hopefully someone will learn something. Yeah. That's the goal of this podcast that no yeah. matter what you do for a living, you could actually listen to, you could not even be in show business and listen to an episode of this. And it's amazing how many comparisons in our discussion can work in a totally different career. And yeah. How many similarities, no matter who I'm interviewing, they have and, and, and how to go about it. Yeah. So, and um, I, I, one last thing. And that's, I've actually thought about that where, 
you know, that it, could the last act be, not that I would ever give up my clients like JB Smoove and, you know, you know, JB has been my client for 17 years. It's, you know, those kinds of people, but, um, that combining my, my love for comedy and my ability to get on a stage and not be, and then what I've learned and the stories and things that I've done, not that I'm going to tell anything salacious, but can I take some of the, some of what I've learned and go and speak about it, you know, and go out and do something like I've thought about that as something I would like to do at some point. Totally. I mean, uh, Barry Katz has a podcast. You can have a, I mean, you could do it in a podcast form, but, or yes, it can be, uh, at, at a college, you know, there's always, yeah, there's so many, that's, what's crazy about stand up. There's so many different things you could veer into where your skill can, you know, you could speak about something. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, uh, yeah, the hard part is figuring out in what formation is is this knowledge. Is it a podcast? Is it a is it a circuit that I'm on where I speak to students? Is it do I you know do I speak to young entrepreneurs? What, what is it? Yeah, you know because you you do have uh, you've seen it all and and you've uh, and you've built a amazing business and now uh, got a lot to offer. <laughs> That sounds so corny. I'm not no, used. No. To, what comedian compliments a manager? This is the weird. Yeah, well, you're never gonna let Bill Burr interview you. I'm the one comedian. Oh, Bill you could probably Bill let would. interview you. You know what? I'd rather. I'd rather just. You know, Bill. Bill's a hockey guy. So the last time he was at Madison Square Garden, they gave him the ice in the afternoon. So he called me up, and I came and skated with Did him. Did he really let you do yeah. that? Yeah, it was me and Bill and my son Noah went and skated and uh, and Bruce Hills from Montreal and some of the old New York Rangers came. It was so much fun. We had so much fun. Uh, it was great. I've got some pictures of it. I love that. That Bill, I think he did the same with, he brought his, got his comedian friends that played music and they like, him and Ben Bailey like set their all their equipment up and they jammed <laughs> in the middle of the empty garden. It played like oh Black God. Sabbath. It's on YouTube somewhere. Oh my God! I gotta yeah, see that. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of benefits of being uh, in your business. You get a lot of get to do some cool stuff. You, de- you know, yeah, you definitely do. Your kids get a little spoiled because they're used to going backstage or having front row seats or knowing the talent or whatever it is. You know that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, but there's also a lot of heartache too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Let's end the podcast. Thank I, you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm glad. Uh, tell your wife I said hi. I haven't seen her in a hundred years, and your kids. I haven't seen them. I haven't seen your son since he was rollerblading around your house, taking oh. slap shots on your old hardwood floors. You were getting new ones, so you were letting him skate around and take slap shots on your living room floor. I remember that. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, we don't even live in that house. We've been out of that house for a long time. My son is now. You should see my son. He's like six two. He looks like an Abercrombie model. Really? You don't live it's- in Dobbs Ferry anymore. We do, but we're selling that house. But um, I think you came to our townhouse before we moved. No, to- no, no, no. I came to the big house. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, right. but it yeah, was it was brand now. new and you had a hockey net in the living room. I remember that. <laughs> I was like, this guy's really relaxed. He's let his kids play hockey in his living room. <laughs> All right, dude. All right, we'll I will catch up you. offline too, right, Joe? Yeah, definitely. Let's right. catch up sometime yeah. soon. See you, buddy. All right, thanks. Thanks for this. Later. Okay. Bye. 
Well, I hope you loved the episode. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, these shows are all funded by you, the audience. If you join patreon.com forward slash pretender to contender, you will be able to watch every episode in high definition <laughs> in high definition video. Okay? So that'd be really cool if you could do that. All right? And for everything else you need about me, if you want to see where I'm going to be performing or you want to book me for a private event, it's pretty easy. Just go to my website, joematterese.com. <laughs>